On March 15th this year, the Senate passed an unusual bill. Senator Ed Markey is one of his sponsors. The Senate just passed daylight savings time to make it year-round. We're walking on sunshine. The Sunshine Protection Act would eliminate the ritual of changing the clocks twice a year. No more springing forward and falling back. No more losing an hour of sleep in March and gaining one in November. We could do a whole show debating the merits of a switch to permanent daylight saving time. The change raises lots of good questions. Would it throw off our body clocks to change the time permanently? Or is it the most rational way to make use of the daylight? But that's not the debate we're going to get into today, for the most part. Because the way the Sunshine Protection Act passed is even stranger than the idea of changing time itself. Most politicians weren't prepared for it. Even some senators didn't know it was happening. It's an issue people have strong feelings on, but it doesn't divide clearly along party lines. Today on the show, we're talking about daylight saving and what it tells us about the American political system. I'm Laura Marsh. And I'm Alex Breen. This is The Politics of Everything. We're talking about Daylight Saving Time and the Sunshine Protection Act, a bill that would make daylight saving time permanent. It was recently passed in the Senate with unanimous consent. Paul McLeod, a politics writer for BuzzFeed News, recently wrote about the bill's surprising success. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. So you wrote about the ins and outs of this. Why was everyone so surprised that the Sunshine Protection Act passed? Well, because things typically don't pass the Senate. It's not an institution (laughs) that is known for efficiency of governance. This is a chamber where bills go to languish and die a slow death. So on a random Tuesday, when something of any importance actually slid through without any issue, a lot of people were quite stunned. And I was immediately suspicious, which is why I started asking people about what happened. And yeah, it, it turns out that this was a bit of a mistake. Even the senators I talked to, none of them expected this to happen. Explain for us, what is unanimous consent? Typically, the Senate has to vote on bills, right? And they have to get 60 votes. Yes, exactly. Unanimous consent is a different process. Most people don't even know about unanimous consent because nothing controversial ever gets passed through unanimous consent. And and really, it's basically what it sounds like. A senator can get up in the chamber and say, hey, is it unanimous that we all agree that all of the debate is waived, all of the votes are waived, and we can just pass this bill as it is? And if no one objects, then it's done. But all it takes is a single senator to say, no, 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 I object, hold on, and the bill goes nowhere. For something like daylight savings time, which there is a lot of debate and there is a lot of disagreement and there are people who fully oppose it, it was unlikely that this unanimous consent was going to succeed. And just to get a sense of what unanimous consent is used for, what kind of bill would we typically expect to see passed this way? So there's two answers to that. The first answer is things that are, you know, something important to someone's state that is is fairly unobjectable, sort of minor things. The second is actually some of the most important pieces of legislation that go before the Senate get involved in unanimous consent. They'll be working out these last minute deals to, say, fund the entire government. And by the time they're done working this out in back rooms, there's not enough time to go through the full process. So what they'll do is they'll use unanimous consent to fast track the process. And this is why if you ever hear, say, of Rand Paul causing a five-day government shutdown and you think, well, how, how can one senator do that? That's what's happening is that they both parties have agreed on a spending bill. 
They need to use unanimous consent to get it done quickly. And one senator is blocking it to make a political point. So the two things it's used for are a proclamation congratulating uh, senator's hometown sports team (laughs) or funding the entire United States government. Those are typically the two things it's used for. Yes. I mean, (laughs) the Schoolhouse Rock version of of Bill's getting studied and then going through debates, it typically is not what happens. I mean, usually the only things that get passed are passed when you have agreement between the parties or at least enough of the parties to get to 60 votes. And then it's ferried through where often you'll have a bill renaming a post office or something. And then at the last moment, they will pretty much literally copy and paste huge pieces of of legislation, important pieces of legislation onto that what's called a legislative vehicle. And then they'll pass it within a day. So it's, it's just a very distorted version of what the original intention of the Senate was. So given the way unanimous consent works and given the way the Senate doesn't work, it kind of raises this question of like, why wouldn't Bernie Sanders wait until all the Republican senators are asleep and most of the Democratic senators are asleep and go to the go to an empty Senate and say, I I ask to pass Medicare for all by unanimous consent? There's kind of two answers to that. The first is that the convention of the Senate has long been that out of respect you give every senator notification so that they have the opportunity to object so that unanimous consent truly is unanimous. The more accurate answer, though, is that as soon as one senator does this, as soon as one senator goes in and sneaks something through, both parties are now going to have to have babysitters. They're going to have people doing round-the-clock shifts in the Senate to make sure that no one goes in and tries to slip anything through unanimous consent. And these are senators. They don't want to do that. They want to be out fundraising and and going to press releases. So there's just this agreement that no one tries it. And, you know, in fairness, getting something through the Senate is not passing into law. It still needs to go through the House. It still needs to be signed by the president. So it's not even a guarantee it would work anyway. But is that what happened in this case? Well, not exactly, no, because Marco Rubio, who is one of the two senators from Florida, where this is a very popular provision, he had announced that he was going to bring this up for unanimous consent. He had run what's called a hotline, which is where you just notify every of the other 99 senators that you're going to be doing it. And sure enough, one senator objected. Roger Wicker of Mississippi said, no, 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 I think that kids are going to be going to school in the dark and they're going to be getting hit while they're waiting for a school bus and I'm going to object to this. And in fact, they even bumped it back a day because Roger Wicker's flight was delayed so he couldn't object on Monday. Marco Rubio agreed to move to Tuesday so that Wicker could object. He brings it up to the floor of the Senate and Roger Wicker was nowhere to be found. And no one else objected either. And even Kristen Sinema, who was serving as the chair at the time, you could see was stunned and then broke out into this huge smile and sort of started fist pumping when it, when it actually passed. So he went through the proper procedure, but what it seems like happened is that one, a bunch of people assumed someone else was going to object, and two, <laughs> a, bunch of, a bunch of staffers just never told their bosses. Like, I talked to some people who were even in favor of it, and they had no idea what was happening. I talked to Rick Scott, who was the other Florida senator, who was a huge proponent of permanent daylight savings time, and he told me if he had known, he would have gone to the floor of the Senate and given a, a celebratory speech, but he had no idea what was happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a way to run a country. Why do you think those staffers didn't tell their bosses? Like, did they see this daylight savings thing and just file it under like, oh, yeah, that this is on the level of renaming a post office. I don't need to inform the person I work for about this. Yeah, that's basically what happens. So things get hotlined all the time. People throw out flyers all the time. And it seems that some of these legislative directors in these Senate offices 
essentially do a bit of triage where they don't bother their boss with everything. I talked to Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, and he said that's what happened in his office is that his staff got this this hotline for daylight savings time. They had never heard him talk about it once, and they figured he doesn't care. So they didn't even tell him. And he's saying this to me, and he goes, and in fairness, I don't know if I do. He's like, I don't know if I have an opinion. I've never stopped to think about it. But what I heard was that Tom Cotton of Arkansas is very opposed to permanent daylight savings time and would have objected, but his staff didn't tell him, and that he was pretty outraged afterwards and is now trying to work with Republicans in the House to get it killed there. Do you have a sense of how the people who do care, one way or another, how they line up on this? Like, why does Tom Cotton hate this, and why are the Florida senators so in favour? Yeah, it's really all over the place. This does not fit into a typical blue versus red spectrum. There was a House study, a House committee study on it a few weeks ago, and politicians from both sides seemed kind of open to it. No one really seemed to have hugely set in stone and hard political beliefs one way or the other. But certainly some people, it just depends on the geography, you know. For Marco Rubio in Florida, if you're in Miami, you get a lot of daylight there. So you're less affected by bumping back the hour during the winter months because you're still able to get light in that morning when most people are going to work and going to school. If you're in North Dakota, well, it's kind of flips where you might be going to school in the darkness regardless. So, and that hour isn't going to make a difference. So mm-hmm. people come down all across the spectrum, depending on where their states are. You say that Cotton was trying to work with House Republicans on this, but it's, it's funny because it's, it's not something where there's a natural partisan divide on this. It's going to be up to what individual members think, right? Yeah. Like for once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is that rare issue where they don't have marching orders in the same way. This obviously took everyone by surprise, and now it's going to go to the House at some point. What do you see happening next? I mean, what do you think the prospects are in the House, and when are they even going to vote on this? It's a fascinating question, and one I don't really know the answer to. I mean, I think that nothing is going to happen quickly. I think the House will take some time to study this. This is such a reversal of the normal way things work, where the House gets to pass whatever it wants, knowing that the Senate's going to block it. Now the House really gets to to be in the driver's seat here and, and feel like they're in control for once. If you had to predict one way or the other, do you think this will pass or do you think it will die in the House? Oh, man, I think I will put my chips on it passing but I'd say there's like 60-40 odds, you know. I, I, I think it's far from a slam dunk. Yeah, I'm also interested in what's going to happen now with unanimous consent because this could go one of two ways. Either they, this could embolden people to try this more often or maybe the senators open up to the idea of passing things through unanimous consent more. Or what will probably happen is a bunch of legislative directors get screamed at by their bosses and (laughs) they tighten their ships to make sure that this never happens again and nothing is able to slip by the same way that Marco Rubio was able to do this. Well, it's funny. This happened because the central fact about senators that seems universal is that they hate being on the floor of the Senate and will do anything possible to avoid that. (laughs) I think you're right. This is not going to convince them they need to spend more time on the floor of the Senate. It's going to convince them that they need to make unanimous consent harder. Yes, yes. I mean, look, the Senate is really an institution that is designed to block legislation. As long as I've been covering it, it's been the thing that has been the most eye-opening to me is just how every incentive is 
to obfuscate. So for something like this to happen, I, again, it's really quite, quite surprising to see something sail through the Senate. That just is not how this normally works. Thanks so much for filling us in on all of this. Thanks to both of you. It was fun talking about this. You can read Paul McLeod's article, Everyone Was Surprised by the Senate Passing Permanent Daylight Saving Time, especially the Senators, on BuzzFeed News. So the Sunshine Protection Act was essentially passed by accident. But how did we get daylight saving time to begin with? After a short break, we'll be back to talk about the very organized and deliberate and not at all accidental history of changing the clocks. In preparing for this episode, I did no research. I know nothing about daylight savings time, but Laura has been reading up on it. So I'm going to ask her about the history of it. And I think the thing I know about where it comes from, there's a sort of folk myth about Ben Franklin inventing daylight savings time in the U.S. Yeah, he's kind of seen as the father of daylight savings time, though he isn't exactly. There's a story that when he was staying in Paris, he woke up at six in the morning and realized how much light you would be missing if you woke up late and then works out like how much money is being wasted on tallow for candles and calculates the economic benefit of of waking up earlier. But he didn't actually recommend changing the clocks. His idea was that the government should tax shutters If you are profligate enough to have shutters to shut out daylight so you can sleep late, then you should be paying a tax for that. Mm -hmm. And you should actually be having no shutters on your windows, like waking up with the sun Mm -hmm. and then saving money on candles by going to bed early. (laughs) Like the drill tweet. And so he also proposed rationing (laughs) candles. So if Ben Franklin didn't invent the idea of changing the clocks, who can we credit for this daylight saving time idea? The actual father of daylight savings is this person called William Willett, who was a British house builder who was like obsessed with light and was very well known for building these like beautiful light filled townhouses. He was the first person to say that we should actually change the clocks. Mm -hmm. But his proposal was not just like one hour forward, one hour back. His proposal was that the clocks should change by one hour and 20 minutes and that this should be implemented in 20 minute increments across four weekends. If you don't like the changing the clocks now, his idea was every weekend in April, you would wake up and change your clock by 20 minutes. (laughs) That's the most annoying possible way to implement a daylight savings time procedure to the extent that I'm surprised we didn't end up adopting some version of it. (laughs) It it nearly was adopted in Britain. So it actually was debated in Parliament and they voted on it. And this is like just before World War One. And then he died. But all the groundwork he had done and like his his very active campaigning for this meant that in World War One, when Britain needed to save energy and save coal for the war effort, that they already had a plan to do daylight savings. And there is actually a statue to him in Britain. And the monument is a sundial that is set to... <laughs> to one o'clock as noon. Oh, really? Like it's a sundial that is set to daylight savings time. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, yeah. That's a great monument. And it has this inscription on it that is like, you know how sundials have inscriptions that are like, I only count the hours of sun. Yeah. This one is I only count the hours of summer. <laughs> in the US, we got it in World War One as well. Is that right? Yes, but much later. The first country to implement daylight savings is actually Germany in World War One. They just do it right away to save coal and then all the other countries in Europe do it to sort of compete because it is actually a huge energy savings they calculated it was like 
it reduces domestic energy consumption at that time by 20% mm. and was a savings of 1% across the whole economy, which doesn't sound like much, but actually 1% of the whole nation's energy usage is really high. Yeah. The US doesn't adopt it till 1918. Mm-hmm. They're very reluctant to adopt it. So we adopt it late, daylight savings time, but it, we don't, it's not continuous. We we quit it right after. What happened? Why did we get off of daylight savings? So there are a lot of people who didn't like daylight savings time. Farmers do not like daylight savings time because they can't change what they do by one hour. They can't start mowing fields or cutting hay right. before all of the morning dew has burned off because their machines don't work, stuff like that. So there's a contingent of people who try to repeal it, and they actually tried to repeal it in this sneaky way by attaching it to an agricultural spending bill that was like bound to pass. Mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson vetoed that bill, and then they do it again, and he vetoes the bill again, but Congress overrides the veto, so it gets abolished. Mm. But what happened as a result was the U.S. did not go back to what it had had before. It went back to what to me is like the most American policy solution ever, which is like a national patchwork where every mm. municipality is allowed to choose what, what time, time it is. runs on. <laughs> And so you end up with a situation where, except in the two periods when we have national daylight savings, which is in World War I and World War II, 40% of the country is on daylight savings. But Mm. this is not a contiguous 40%. (laughs) These are isolated towns. Some states have it, some don't. Within states, you have some cities that have it, but other areas that don't. Major cities in the same state that do not observe the same time. And in some cases, towns where there's like a federally run institution that observes daylight savings, <laughs> but the rest of the town doesn't. And so there are two clocks in the town, one on standard time and one on daylight savings. And like, as you can imagine, this drives everyone crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's federalism, baby. That's how we that's how we do things in the U.S. And that persisted until 1966. <laughs> it must have been. I mean, it must have made it really hard to, like, figure out how to listen to Jack Benny on the radio. You had no idea what time he's going to come on. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know how people function. I was so surprised to discover this because I know a lot of people who were, like, sentient before 1966. And I've yeah. never heard anyone mention, oh, if you traveled from New York to Buffalo, like, you had to check what time it was going to be. I, I don't know how people functioned. So we did National Daylight Savings Time in World War I and in World War II, but both times we stopped after the war was done, right? Mm-hmm. Why did we finally get it back? We do abandon it after World War II as a national policy, and it doesn't become a national policy again until 1966. And the reason for the Uniform Time Act in 1966 is just that it's chaos, that you can't, (laughs) they decide you just can't keep doing this. You can't have this crazy patchwork. And so with the Uniform Time Act, each state is told you have to either observe daylight savings or opt out. There's no like menu of choices here. You can either be on standard time all year round, which is what Arizona is, or you can be on daylight savings and your daylight savings has to start and end at the same time as the rest of the country. So we we tell all the states you got to pick a side, but there were attempts around then to make daylight savings time permanent back then, right? Okay, yeah. So the Uniform Time Act just makes seasonal daylight savings regular and kind of consistent across the country. But in 1973, there's this national experiment with doing a year-round daylight savings. And the reason for that is the energy crisis in 1973. The U.S. just really didn't have a choice but to take some drastic measures to try and reduce its reliance on oil. And so the Emergency Daylight Savings Time Energy Conservation Act goes into force very, very quickly in 1973. And there isn't that much debate about it because they just need to cut energy use. 
So we had, for a time, a permanent daylight saving? Only for one year. How did it go? Well, it actually went really well. So according to this book I read (laughs) called called Seize the Daylight, which is this history of daylight savings time, it was extremely effective in achieving what the Nixon administration wanted to achieve, which was that it saved, it was a 1% savings across the country in energy use, Mm. which again, doesn't sound huge, but actually... I mean, it adds up. That's a lot. 1% (laughs) of the whole of America is a lot. Yeah. Congress did a study on whether they should keep it or not. And the study actually found that like deaths in car accidents went down crime went down because, you know, like a lot of street crime happens when people are on their way home walking at at night. But it was repealed anyway because it was very unpopular. And this idea that it was dangerous for people to travel in the morning, according to the author of this book, David Prerow, is that stories of children being hit on their way to school resonate more with the public than stories of fewer adults dying in car crashes overall. Right. And so the emotional argument to get rid of it is stronger and just more powerful than any of the benefits that you can point to. The important thing to remember is that they did not actually really lose. So yes, the people who wanted daylight savings didn't get a permanent year-round daylight savings, but they did actually extend daylight savings as a result of the 1973 energy crisis. They actually added a couple of months to daylight savings. Did that regime last until Bush expanded it even further? It's actually been expanded a couple of times. Reagan expanded it too. It was just kind of tacked onto a fire prevention act in the 80s. And then George Bush expanded it in 2005. It's always either a war or some hike in energy prices that causes this. And there never really is that much deliberation when that happens, even though there has historically been quite an intense debate. In light of the history of daylight saving time, the chaotic way the Sunshine Protection Act passed the Senate is a little bit less surprising. After a break, we'll be back to talk about what daylight saving time tells us about the American political system itself. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. We're speaking now with author and political scientist Ed Bermilla about Congress. How could daylight saving time, of all things, pass in a highly partisan, mostly deadlocked system. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you were ranking all of the many accomplishments of the United States Congress, and specifically the Senate of this year so far, the many (laughs) bills they've passed, Uh the many victories that leadership has won, (laughs) uh, where on that list would you rank the passage of the uh, Sunshine Protection Act? Well, it's got to be right near the top, given that <laughs> I'm having a difficult time thinking of, of other accomplishments they've had recently in the chamber. When this went through in the Senate, I think some people looked at it and said, oh, well, this is like the one thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. And in fact, Senator Ed Markey, who's been a longtime proponent of permanent daylight savings, even said in his speech that this was an example of bridging ideological divisions with, quote, bringing liberal Democrats from the Northeast, conservative Republicans from Florida together, quote, to show that this institution can work. In Ed Markey's description, daylight savings is proof that the United States Senate can get things done, that they can overcome their partisan division. What do you think of that? 
It's interesting to me that this continually is framed as a bipartisan issue, or it's, you know, he, he describes it as bipartisan when really the issue is that it's nonpartisan. And I think that's an important <laughs> distinction. Bipartisan implies that we're getting some sort of consensus on an ideological issue. This is an issue where neither interest groups and economic interests, like they can't figure out whether this is going to benefit them or not, even within single industries like the bar and restaurant industry. If you're a bar or restaurant that has a lot of picnic table, outdoor type seating in business, an extra hour of daylight in the evening during winter is, is a bonus. If you're a traditional sort of indoor only bar, extra daylight in the evening in winter means you're waiting an additional hour before your customers come in. So even within a single industry, that's just an example of how little consensus there is. So it's more confusion than bipartisanship, <laughs> in my view. Right. So universal confusion is not bipartisan, it's nonpartisan. Universal yes. Agreement of some kind is bipartisan. That is an excellent definition, and you should trademark that as soon as we're done with this. I also want to ask Alex Perrine about this because Alex. I find it funny that a senator would say this was an example of the United States Senate working like this bill that passed without any deliberation is somehow proof that the institution is that like is working and is at its best. I think even in the public reception before we had additional reporting about how this happened, people were like, oh, Congress, like they finally came together to do this. But I mean, <laughs> it was passed by accident. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to the actual reality of the chamber of the United States Senate that it can only only managed to get things done by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost as if rather than an example of some kind of victory for the, the institution working as candidate, it just suggests that if an issue is of low enough salience and yeah. nobody can figure <laughs> out whether or not to oppose or support it, uh, we can kind of sneak it by. Well, that's the ultimate joke here is that the Senate conceives of itself as, as the world's most deliberative body. Mm -hmm. And daylight savings, I mean, we can and we are talking about the costs and benefits of daylight savings, having a conversation. We could try to convince each other of things. We could try to be persuasive about it. In theory, senators are supposed to do that and uh -huh. then deliberatively come to an <laughs> agreement. And instead, they just had a sort of sneak unanimous consent vote that caught a bunch of people by surprise. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the ultimate form of deliberation is simply passing something because, you know, we, we intuit that everyone agrees with it. Very strange example of, of what the Senate is supposed to be good at. It seems like a lot of the anxiety with some of the senators who missed this, and then also I think for some of the representatives who will ultimately have to face this in the House if it goes to a vote there, is that people can't work out, like, is there a clear partisan line you can take on this? This is something Alex and I have been kind of like trying to figure out in our conversations. Like, is daylight savings inherently a left position because it represents a kind of utopian project to change reality in the same way that like the French revolutionary calendar did? Well, look what happened to that. <laughs> and is standard time inherently right wing? Is it kind of like a paleo conservative thing? Yeah, standard time is trad, right? It's traditional. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, we have to try very hard and put our expensive liberal arts educations, uh, you know, turn them up to their maximum output in order to make <laughs> arguments like that. I mean, if there were a clear partisan divide on that, this would be much easier for the House to deal with. Joe Biden would be saying, hell yeah, I'm all for it. If we could say Democrats and you know permanent daylight savings went together naturally. They simply don't, though. They're totally plausible arguments to make on both sides because we're not changing anything so much as we're just 
making a different kind of adjustment to how the seasons affect what we do. It's almost like our like system doesn't know how to process an issue that doesn't have the two sides sort of camped out on either side, right? Like the Well, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. And that's why in legislatures, parties are absolutely essential. The the political parties are uh, not something Americans hold in very high regard, but when you take them away from a legislature, the most likely result is going to be chaos. When you can't just look at the person next to you in your party Senate caucus and say, how are we voting on this? Yeah. Suddenly everything goes haywire and uh, nobody's <laughs> quite sure what to do. And you end up with Tom Cotton mad and Marco Rubio happy. A lot of Americans, I think, have a naive attachment to the idea that if the parties could get along or if they're, if everything were nonpartisan, everything would work better. But as you say, mm-hmm. you get chaos, but you also just sort of get ruled by lobbyists in that case. You do. You're going to get the most agreement and the nicest interactions on the issues with the lowest stakes. Yeah, and part exactly. of the reason Marky and Rubio can act out in a late 90s episode of The West Wing here where they join hands and try to accomplish the same goal is it's not clear to anybody who the beneficiaries of this are going to be versus who are the people who could be hurt by it. Real easy to get along when what we're talking about doesn't matter. So I am very pro daylight savings time. So I kind of resist this idea that it doesn't matter at all. Like having an extra hour of sunlight in the afternoon, especially when you have very short days in winter, that does seem kind of consequential. Mm -hmm. So that's why I I was very excited to see this happen. Whereas talking to Alex, this is like a rare issue that we have opposite yeah. <laughs> yeah. Famous I, contrarian Alex Perrine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love daylight as much as the next person. Oh, you say that, but here comes the buts. <laughs> but, but now, you know, I'm a fan of sunlight, but <laughs> I do just have this sort of curmudgeonly belief that noon should be noon, like on the sundial. Like that's that's noon. And daylight savings time, you know, I I enjoy the extra hour, but I'm getting the same amount of sunlight in my day. The clock is not the thing keeping me from enjoying it. It's what my work says or what mm-hmm. my if I'm a kid, what my school says. I'm in favor of standard time for all and then just more leisure time for everyone as well. That would be a harder thing to pass on unanimous consent in the Senate, <laughs> though. So, I mean, I completely get Alex's point, which is like, look, if you want to be working less when you have these scarce, precious hours of sunlight, especially in the winter when it's easy to be deprived of sunlight and all the benefits that brings, then you should just change work. You should regulate <laughs> workplaces, you should have, I don't know, like a 30-hour week. There are all kinds of things you could do, right, to provide that. But daylight savings time is kind of this technocratic, bland fix that allows you to have some of that benefit without making it look like you're actually transforming society in a way that, look, Marco Rubio is not going to get behind. (laughs) The concept of the politics of time is fascinating to me, especially when you realize we can do anything we want with it. It's almost too much freedom and we want the choices narrowed down somehow. What would be your ideal regime of (laughs) yearly, yearly timekeeping, Ed? 
I think that it's irrelevant because anyone we choose, as long as we don't change it regularly, we are dealing with the same fundamental physical forces and we will adjust to it. My preferred outcome is that there is an outcome. Just pick something, you know, <laughs> because what, what messes with people is the technocratic attempt to constantly be refining and perfecting what we really have very limited control over. I mean, it's refreshing to me how simple the terms of this debate are, which is add mm -hmm. one, take one away, or keep doing the same. Mm -hmm. And that no one is proposing like a means tested or like work <laughs> requirement to get daylight savings. <laughs> like, you have to be employed for so many hours a week right. to be allowed to have this extra hour. Like in qualified low income communities, <laughs> something. Um, yeah. Yeah. That feels like the kind of policy that would emerge if this had been properly debated <laughs> and really honed. Additional daylight in the form of a tax credit at the end right. of the yeah. year. You got daylight <laughs> credits. Uh, <laughs> Your, your 1040. Uh, Laura, I think that's a fantastic point. The simpler we make the debate, the quote unquote, you know, better qualitatively we see the Senate working. Part of the reason why this is being lauded as an example of the Senate working well is because their options are so restricted. Nobody can propose a technocratic solution where we actually make the sun shine for an extra hour a day or whatever. Nobody can propose anything that's way out there, like we shift the time seven hours for the fall or something like that. They're really limited. And the more those options are limited, the less irritating the debate seems for the rest <laughs> of us, because it really is straightforward. Now that you've said that, there will be daylight savings related <laughs> attack ads right. by, by shadowy dark money groups. Right. Somewhere in Kirsten <laughs> Cinema's office right now, a staffer just felt a tickle on the back of their neck and they're like, oh, I've got to <laughs> this up somehow. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about this, Ed. I appreciate you having me on. It's always been my dream, honestly, to talk about daylight savings time in a legitimate forum. So, <laughs> Not just on a bar stool. <laughs> You think I'm, I'm kidding right now, but uh, yeah, actually, most bartenders, you know, they cut me off after about five minutes. And say, okay, <laughs> are you going to buy a drink or not? Thank you. Ed Miller's book, Chaotic Neutral, How the Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center, will be out in September. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy the show and you want to help support it, one thing you can do is rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Every review helps. Thanks for listening. <laughs>